We're looking this morning at God's role, God the Father's role, in the servant's suffering. And we begin with Isaiah's question. It's in our text. We're introduced to this as early as the first verse, in which Isaiah is carrying on a conversation with God, the real author of Isaiah's prophecy, and Isaiah asks God this question. Here it is. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The picture here is of Isaiah giving a commentary to God on how their message, which would comprise the entire book of Isaiah, was received by Israel, the people of God. And his question is not for information's sake. It's rhetorical. Isaiah already knows the answer to the question. That is, Israel has not listened, will not listen, does not ever intend to listen to the promised judgments of God coming upon them for their sin. They are like this when it comes to hearing their own prophet Isaiah. Blah, 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 blah. We don't want to hear you. Go away, old man. We don't want to hear from God. More importantly, Israel does not believe and will not arrange its life on the basis of the wonderful parts of Isaiah's prophecy concerning the virgin's child, which we've studied, the child king who will rule the nations with equity, chapter 9, the Messiah who is destined to move Remove the curse of God from the environment, chapter 11. Good news, bad news, it makes no difference. Lord, how no, who has believed our report? Answer, no one. Sadly, no one. Even the good promises that God gives, they don't want to hear. Does that sound like a country we know? Yeah, America today. That is America today. Who has believed our message? No one. So what we have, we have preachers changing the message so that it will be popular. Paul warned about that in 2 Timothy 4. He says the day will come when people will not listen. They're not going to put up with sound doctrine, but they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, who will tell them what they want to hear. That's our country. And if we dare to preach the gospel and stick with the old tried and true, then we are small in number, as is evident in our little church. Now the point we're looking at here is this phrase in verse 1, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord... That, that phrase, the arm of the Lord, is a Hebraism. We have colloquial expressions in English. Well, the Hebrews had it too. It's called Hebraism. It's a figure of speech standing for the strength or the power of God. The arm of the Lord. Isaiah uses it a couple more times in his book. And you can get a feel for how he uses it. For example, Isaiah 51 verse 9. Awake, awake, writes Isaiah. Clothe yourself with strength, O arm of the Lord. 
Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces? That's the sea monster in Egypt's waters that was known as Rahab. Was it not you who dried up the sea, who made a road in the depths of the sea, so that the redeemed might cross over? So you see how Isaiah is using the expression arm of the Lord. He's referring to the power of God to deliver his people against insurmountable foes when they cross the Red Sea in the Exodus. Or again, Isaiah 30, verse 30. The Lord will cause men to hear his majestic voice and will make them see his arm coming down with raging anger and consuming fire, with cloudbursts, thunderstorms, and hail. And that's a reference to God bringing Assyria to the north down against Israel, his people. God doing that. And if you read Isaiah's prophecy, he talks about, uh, God talks about Assyria being uh, the the man that he raised up to come against uh, Israel. Now the point of all this is that behind the message of Isaiah's prophecy, which he admits no one is listening to, behind this message is the arm, the strength of the Lord being revealed. It's a Hebrew way of saying, God is behind my message as the key player. As his prophet, I speak for him. I didn't make this stuff up. More than this, Isaiah is saying that God has ordained the events predicted here in this prophecy concerning the suffering servant. The arm of the Lord is here. The strength of the Lord. This is his message he wants to get out. Now, that brings us to point two in your bulletin outline. In short, the servant of the Lord suffers because God has so ordained it. Things are going down exactly the way in which God himself planned them. And there is no getting around him in these matters. Even the stubbornness of Israel. Think about it. Even their unbelief of Isaiah's message. Even their denial that the arm of God is in it does not alter the facts one whit. And I say that to any rebels today who think that they can take issue with the scriptures fight against the word of God and do this like Isaiah's people did. It doesn't alter the plan of God, the program of God, one whit. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn this and he says, God does as he pleases if the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth and no one can stay back his hand. That's our God. So protest all you want. You know, stop your ears all you want. God's word is marching on. This is implied in verse 1 when we get, but when we get to verse 4, it is categorically affirmed. Surely he took our infirmities, carried our sorrows, yet he can, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Who struck the servant down? Good question. Answer, God the Father. Who smote him? Who afflicted him? God the Father. In a few moments we will see that this action of God does not rule out human 
involvement, but for now just let it sink in that Jesus Christ suffered what he suffered because God the Father had ordained this for him. This has been explained in a number of different ways, the most popular being that Jesus' suffering falls under the permissive will of God. Whenever theologians do not like to link God with a particular nasty deed, they whip out this trump card called the permissive will of God. The argument would go something like this. The beatings Jesus took, the insults heaped upon him by the Roman soldiers, the spittle, the flogging, the punching in the face, most assuredly the crucifixion itself, were all permitted to occur by God. What is being suggested, of course, is that God himself had no active role in these atrocities, but simply turned and kind of looked the other way while wicked men did their work. He permitted them to do their thing. Now, there's some truth to this. There is some truth to this, to be sure. But we have to ask the question, why would the theologians argue this way? Here's two reasons. Number one, the events being described are so, so hideous so atrocious, so offensive to common sensibilities and decency, so opposite of the justice and righteousness of God that God could not possibly be directly involved. That's the first argument. So the goal here is to protect The moral integrity of God. God is good, God is righteous, God is just, and what was done to Jesus was evil, it was not right, it was was unjust. So the best we can say is that God permitted these things to occur. But if you think about this, has that really solved the issue? How can God permit something He has not ordained to occur. Does his volition come into play before or after the event? If before, if he chose to permit something to occur and then ordained it to be so, was not his choice freely made and doesn't his choice set the stage for what actually occurred? That's the first reason. These are horrible atrocities. You can't see God involved in that. Second, the second reason theologians go down this route of explanation has to do with the omnipotence of God. Something has to be said about the involvement of God in these matters precisely because God is omnipotent, all-powerful, This being the case, he cannot be excluded from the picture simply because what is occurring is distasteful. So the argument goes something like this. Evil men are no, wicked plotting in all, 
God is more powerful than man. The creator is over his creation. So God could have stopped or he could have prevented altogether the torture and the execution of his son. That he did not do this is evident that he at least agreed that it should occur. He permitted these things, therefore, to happen. The only alternative to this, which these good men are not willing to take, is to say that God is not all-powerful. He does not control the universe as the Bible states that he does. Man and Satan, or both, maybe, can thwart the will of God. They're not ready to say that. So they're saying, God is omnipotent. He could have stopped it. He chose not to. Why did he choose not? He permitted it. Now they say that they are not willing to take that route because to do so denies so much of the scriptures teaching about God, his authority, his sovereignty, as to create a worse monster. A God that doesn't have any control. So what are we to say about this? I mean, is Isaiah 53, not the prophecy itself, but the reality, is this to be explained in light of the permissive will of God and so absolve God of any personal involvement? Is this what Isaiah is stating in our text? I don't think so. In fact, I know so. Listen to the language. Hear the tone. Here it goes. Verse 4. We considered him, the suffering servant of Jehovah, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Well, who makes assignments for death? Who makes assignments for graves but God? Verse 10. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Boy, we didn't have any other verse than that one. That would be sufficient. Verse 10. He goes on, the Lord made his life a guilt offering. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. These scriptures speak of more than God simply permitting certain events to occur. They speak of God doing the smiting, the afflicting, the burdening of Christ with our iniquities, of assigning him his grave and the death that would take him to it. And finally they tell us that it was God's will to crush him. And to cause him to suffer and to offer him as a guilt offering. The servant suffers because God made him suffer. God willed it. God ordained it. And God executed it. Well, what is the New Testament confirmation? This is, after all, is prophecy, right? We, we want to look now at fulfillment. Remember that Isaiah simply predicted what was to occur but the question is is this really the way it went down well I've divided some scriptures up you've got them in there in your bulletin uh, outline there firstly then scriptures which speak of Jesus being sent into the world by God the Father 
to do the Father's will. John 4, verse 34, My food, says Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Here, here Jesus is explaining why he's on the scene. He's, he's doing the Father's work. John 5, verse 36, The very work that the Father has given me to finish, and which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. So it's kind of mission status talk here. I'm on a mission. What's your mission, Jesus? My mission is to do what my Father sent me to do. Again, John 6, verse 38. I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Well, do we not know that this will of God, of which Jesus repeatedly spoke, included the suffering, his suffering, and his cross? Yet Jesus in these scriptures does not speak of God's will in any permissive sense, but rather in the form of having been sent to carry out a mission. Oh, you mean the Father sent him on a mission that involved suffering and death. That's the obvious conclusion. Secondly, there are scriptures which identify God's mission for his Son more clearly. John 3, verse 17, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Or John 10, verse 17 and 18, The reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. John 12, verse 27. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Is that what I should say? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then speaking of the cross, which was but hours away, Jesus said in his prayer to God, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. John 17 and verse 4. So sent on a mission, then the mission is, kind of, is very clarified. So what's going to happen? Now, thirdly, scriptures which magnify the truth that the wicked intent of others notwithstanding... Unless God actively wills the wicked to prosper in their intent, they could have done nothing to Jesus. John 14, verse 30. Jesus says, I will not speak with you much longer. He's talking to his disciples. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. That's a reference to Satan. He has no hold on me. Listen to that. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father. That's what he's saying. And that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Satan is, is doing his worst. 
But Jesus comes right out and says, let him do his worst. He has no hold on me. I'm not here at his will, or I'm not subject to his whims. But the world has to learn. It has to learn something. It must learn that I love the Father, and I do exactly what my Father has commanded me to do. Satan could not hurt him whatsoever. No hold on Christ, no power to hurt. But he will hurt Jesus, as you know from the prophecy in Genesis. The serpent will bruise the son's heel. But only because Jesus is going to do exactly as his father has commanded him to do. In John 19, before Pilate, Jesus was being interrogated. But as our text says, verse 7, As a sheep before her shearers is silent, so Jesus, he, did not open his mouth. And so Pilate was firing his questions at Jesus and our Lord refused to answer him. Stood there mute. This made Pilate furious. And Pilate said to Jesus, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you? You know who you're speaking to here, or in this case, not speaking to? In verse 10, Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. You see, neither devils nor wicked men can touch Christ unless the Father wills it to be so. That's his point. I'm here before your tribunal, Pilate, not because Roman soldiers arrested me in the garden while I was praying, but because my father's will is being accomplished and carried out to the very end. Number four, there are scriptures which speak specifically of the suffering and cross experience. John 18 I just alluded to this. The soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the garden led by the traitor Judas. And we observe Peter in characteristic fashion whipping out one of the two swords that the disciples owned. And this fisherman with but one sword began to take on the Roman detachment and the officials of the high priest. I love it. <laughs> Think about this. Fault Peter for his later fear and cowardly denial, but do not fault him for his love for Christ. As far as a man can be true to his own words without knowing his heart, Peter meant it when he assured Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. I will do that. John 13, verse 37. That sword wielded by passionate Peter was successful in hitting one of the official's servants, but he missed the guy's head and lopped off his ears. Well, what do you expect from a fisherman with a sword? I imagine things got real tense at that moment in the garden. Think about it. Peter unwittingly unwittingly, yes, had jeopardized not only his own life, but the lives of all of his fellow disciples. 
The Roman soldiers stood ready to reduce this band of rebels to bloody carcasses on a hillside. But Jesus quickly restored Malchus' ear and he defused the situation. He turned and said to Peter, Put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? John 18, verse 11. And Matthew tells us that Jesus went on to say, Do you think that I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That's 72,000. But how then, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Matthew 26, verse 53 and 54. What way? Well, the Father's way, which includes a cup of suffering and pain and torture by crucifixion, which must be consumed. That cup has to be drunk. In the garden, just moments before his arrest, Jesus had prayed three times to the Father. My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken away from me. Yet, yet, not as I will, but as you will. Matthew 26, verse 39. Brethren, this is more than permissive will. For God did have the power to send legions of angels to rescue his son out of the hands of his executioners. But it was his act of will to strike his son, to crush him, to cause him to suffer, and to make his life a guilt offering. Verse 10 of our text. Or again, consider the words of Christ from his cross. My God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, verse 46. To be forsaken of God is to have all of hell come against you. No one in this room, no one in radio land listening to us this day, no one living in the world in the past or in the present, no one has ever spent a moment of their life abandoned by God. He upholds creation by the word of his power, the scripture says. He sustains your life and mine by providing the rain and the sunshine for crops to grow. And yes, no, which we have been getting copious amounts. I just heard a report this week of how the snow cover in the south is going to end the drought down there come this spring. God rules, he overrules in the schemes of men to provide some semblance of sanity and order in a wicked world. But hell, if it is anything, is a place that is forsaken by God. It's controlled by God, it's managed by God, it's restricted and confined by God, but nonetheless it's devoid of His presence and His grace. The cry of Christ from His cross says to us all that God sent His Son to hell that day. 
the sins of those men and women and children embossed in the mind of God and enrolled in the Lamb's book of life before the world was created. And if we are of the mind to suppose that because Jesus was God's Son, God was somehow more lenient on him than he would have been on lesser men, Paul tells us, ah, 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 ah. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Romans 8, verse 32. The conclusion of the matter then is that the New Testament supports the predictions of Isaiah 53 and shows beyond doubt that God the Father was proactive in the tortures inflicted upon his son Jesus and did in fact strike him down, afflict him, crush him, cause him to suffer and make his life a guilt offering. Now all of that being true, this leads then to larger and harder questions. We don't dodge the hard questions because they're hard questions. the larger and harder questions, is this. How can what God did, how can that be right? Or to ask it another way, where's the justice in this? God the Father bringing upon his innocent son all the pain, anguish, and death of a common criminal. Crucifixion was a criminal's death. It was an execution for enemies against the state. The thief on the cross was right when he told the second thief to hold his tongue from cursing Jesus, saying, Don't you fear God? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Luke 23, verse 41. Well, that's true. Yeah, he had that right. So still, the question has to be asked, why the cross? Why was Jesus sent to the cross then? It'll never do to say that wicked men put him there, though that's true. And even though it is true, is not God stronger than men? Does not the scripture say that no one can thwart the will of our sovereign God. You'll find it in Daniel 4, verse 35. He does what he wills. He does what he pleases. No one can say, don't do that. No one can stop him from doing whatever he wants. So you see, the larger, the harder question is not, did Christ suffer unjustly, but how could God the Father have had an active role in it? It is the incongruity of the absolute wrongness of the innocent Jesus suffering the fate of a wicked criminal with the impeccable righteousness and justice of a holy God that has caused the theologians writing on these themes to speak of God's permissive will rather than of God's active will in these matters. I, I could say this, they want to protect the integrity of God. I would say that God does not need our protection. 
All his ways are just. All his ways are right, whether we see it or not. And our definitions of right and wrong do not come from societal norms, which the sociologists would like us to believe, but from God the Creator who tells us right from wrong, what is good, what is evil, what is moral, what is immoral. Christ the lawgiver, God the lawgiver. And anything beyond that is presumption, and anything less than that is rebellion. The reason society wants to set the roles is they want to be able to say to God, take Ike, we're not listening to your rules. All right, so how then do we resolve this seeming dilemma? How can God be just and punish the innocent? How can he crush him whom Isaiah said in the previous verse, verse 9, had, no, had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth? That's just Isaiah's way of saying, the guy's innocent. He's sinless. Here's the answer. When Christ died on the cross, he wasn't innocent any longer. He was guilty. Isaiah words it this way, verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and there are sinful ways, by the way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Previous verse quoted by Peter in 1 Peter 2 verse 24 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. The Apostle Paul words it this way, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are talking here of vicarious death. We are talking here of a stand-in, a substitute. But for whom does Jesus present himself? It's for his people. And what are his people in relationship to God. They are, look at it in your text, they are people with infirmities, verse 4. They are transgressors of God's law, verse 5. They are full of iniquity, also verse 5. They are criminals before God deserving his punishment, verse 5. They are sheep that love to wander away from God's righteous rule and do their own sinful thing, verse 6. And Jesus became all of these things the moment he was arrested, tried, convicted, sentenced to death, and then nailed to a cross. And it was just and it was right for God to pour out upon him as our substitute all of his anger and wrath against the one who was standing in your place and in my place. And you better thank God that he did it. God smote Jesus for your sins and for my sins. 
He tortured him for your transgressions and my transgressions. He flogged him and crucified him and abandoned him to hell because he acted as your substitute and mine. And if the guilt offering, verse 10, was to be effective, it had to placate your guilt before God and mine. It isn't token. It isn't simply symbolic. It's actual. Another hard question. What was God's motive? What on earth or in heaven would ever compel God to do such a thing with his innocent, beloved son? Why would he hurl upon his son all the punishment, all the hell due to us? The answer is, he loved us. He loved us. May I say, they loved us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God. For while it was the Father's will to crush his Son under the penalty of our sin, it was Jesus' will, and we read it earlier, to lay down his life for the sheep. No man took it from him, but to lay, he lay it down of his own volition. Yes, it was the Father's will, but he willingly succumbed to the Father's will. And it was the Spirit's work to prompt Jesus to return to Jerusalem out of the safe haven across the Jordan and go back into that deadly city of Jerusalem where he knew, he knew, he knew, he knew he would be arrested and tried and crucified. We ask the question, well, didn't God love his son? Well, of course he loved his son. And we must be careful here in what we say that we do not denigrate that love. But suffice it to say that God loved us too. And there was no other way for his love to be justly bestowed upon us short of our sin being atoned for and punished so that we could be forgiven and set free. Oh, 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 and adopted. Adopted into God's family as more sons and daughters. And that is precisely what we read in the scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He so loved the world. Romans 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's, it's by grace that you have been saved. Or 1 John 4, verse 9, verse 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God 
but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Or 1 John 3 verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that, says John, is what we are. Well, it came at a price, folks. It came at a price. God didn't just wave a magic wand and say, Oh, you're all children. Now, the justice part, the righteous part, from God the Father's uh, side, was that he had to deal, had to, had to deal with our sin, our breach of his law. Someone had to pay. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. I didn't say that. God's word says that. The soul that sins must die. That's how serious it is to be a lawbreaker of God's law. Hebrews 2, verse 9 and following is a beautiful text. The author writes, We see Jesus. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Now crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death. For everyone. In bringing many sons to glory. It was fitting. That God for whom and through whom. Everything exists. Should make the author of their salvation. Perfect through suffering. Now both the one who makes men holy. And those who are made holy. Are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed. To call them. Brothers. There's the adoption. Very clearly, God loved his son. God loved those who became adopted sons through the substitutionary death of Jesus. Let me ask this morning have you come into the fellowship of God's love for sinners? You can experience this love of God through repentance of your sins and faith that Jesus by himself, without your help, faith in Jesus by himself, without your help, has appeased God and has placated God's wrath concerning your sin. There's nothing left for you to do. No loose strings. Jesus paid it all. The hymn writer says, All to him I owe. Sin had done its, left its crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He did it. And Jesus gives us this definition. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do. What I command. John 15 verse 13. And what does he command? To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The one that the Father has sent. And of all that come to him. Jesus says. I will. 
cast out none of all that come to you. This is a plan of salvation that is the only plan of salvation. God did not put his son through all of this so that the world could say through its hundreds of religions, oh, there are many ways to God. All you have to do is be sincere. Really? If you're sincerely wrong, you end up in hell. And Jesus said, I am I alone am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And no one, zero, no one comes before the Father except through me. Through me. Through me. You know what that does? That puts the death knell to every religion in the world except Christianity, the gospel of Christ. Because God only had one son, uniquely his. And he suffered. And he gave up that one son. And he didn't go through all of that so the world could say, well, now just be sincere in what you believe. Any road's okay. No. All the broad roads, broad is the road, Jesus said, that leads to what? Hell, to destruction. But narrow is the gate, and straight is the path that leads to glory. And Jesus says, I'm that way. I'm that path. That's how restrictive it is. So our task is to get the gospel out, and the task of believer or of the world is to believe the message if they would be saved. I pray that's so for all that hear my voice this morning. Father, I know I'm a realist. I know there are those that don't believe and have not repented of their sin. They're still trying to work their way to heaven. They still think they're not so bad as to deserve hell. But when I look at the cross, when I see what Jesus went through at the hands of his torturers and so on, when I see what God did to him, his very beloved son, in punishment for the sins of his people, then I get a different view of what my sin must be like. And I begin to realize that, uh, as the scripture says, there is none good, not even one. Well, there was one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is because of his innocence, his sinlessness, that he could bear the sins of others, not himself. He had no sins to bear for himself, but he could take on other sins and pay their debt, which he gladly did. Thank you, dear Christ. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate that um, crossword. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Isaiah's prophecy. It's just filled to the letter. Bless our time. And if there's one here today or in our internet audience that does not know Christ, they're, they're, they just 
can't get it through their heads that they're, they're quite as wicked as the scripture says they are. And yet that very disallowing of the scriptures is a sin in itself. It's to call God a liar. It's to say his evaluation is not true. Help them, Lord. Bring them this day. Grant them faith and repentance that they too might be adopted into your family. May some, one or two, or as many as you please, be brought into your family today for your glory and their good. Amen.